all of you here tonight on Wednesday night. There's nothing better on TV, I promise you, than this right here. We're going through Hebrews. How many of you read ahead through chapter 2? Tell the truth. You're in church. All right? How many of you meant to? That's okay. (laughs) All right. We're going through Hebrews because it's really, really heavily Christological. And what I mean by that is it's filled with the doctrine or the teaching or the, 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 the truths about who Jesus was and is. And, you know, there's a lot of people walking around in churches these days that are, are very confused about Jesus. You know, that sounds strange. They're in church. What are you doing confused about Jesus? But churches are full of people lost, full of people that don't understand who he claimed to be and really need that foundation laid. You know, they need that foundation laid of what to believe about Jesus Christ. Amen? And uh, used to, when I started preaching, uh, you assumed that people knew certain things. And so you knew that if you said a certain thing about the Lord, they got it right off the bat. They got it. Now you can't assume that anymore. You have to go back to the elementary doctrines of, of Christ and just the basic ABCs of him. But in Hebrews, we're going way beyond the ABCs. We're going into Z. You know, <laughs> amen? Way, so we're learning about the Lord. So tonight we're in chapter two, and we're gonna see how Jesus is better and how we better not drift. Amen? Why don't you just hold your hands up towards the Lord if you have liberty to do that. I hope you do. You just say, Jesus, tonight. Help me to learn of you. I take your word into my heart as the word of God. Speak to me, Lord, in Jesus' name. I receive it. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's better. He's better. Amen. And that is, if you were to put the book of Hebrews in a blender and hit liquefy and pour it out, it would have one main flavor, better. I just came up with that right then, just, you know, but better. The, the key word of Hebrews is better. Uh, Jesus gave us a better covenant. We have a better savior. We have a better mediator. We have a better blood. We have a better hope. We have a better everything. So everybody say together, better. Amen. And so let me just real quickly, in just a couple of sentences, look at last time. We saw that Jesus is superior to who? The angels of God. Now, how many of you know there are angels out there, up there in the atmosphere and in heaven? There's angels, right? And so the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, and I think God must have wanted it that way. I strongly suspect Paul, but there's no proof. But that's okay. It's still the word of God. Amen? Uh, But we saw that the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus is better, higher, superior to the angels of God. And what Hebrews is going to do is show us how Jesus is better than several different things. So in chapter 1, it was the angels. And uh, in light of that, what we're about to get into tonight, chapter 2, the writer encourages us to hold firmly to the better salvation that he has given to us. So hold it tight. 
Now let's read verse 1. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we do what, everybody? Drift away. All right? So now it begins with the word therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to see what it's there for. All right? Because therefore is a connecting word that points to something you just heard and that you're about to have something added to. All right? It's a connective. So the first word in chapter 2 is linking us to what we just learned in chapter 1. In light of everything we learned in chapter 1, he's better than the angels. Therefore, we better give earnest heed to what we heard, lest we drift away. Now, remember I told you last time that the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews, Jewish people, hence the name Hebrews. And they were coming out of the Mosaic system. They were coming out of the old covenant way of doing things. The animal sacrifices, the feasts, all the things that they had learned to do under the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. And so they've heard the gospel. They've heard the teaching of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ. Some of them had had fully gotten saved. Some of them were on the edge. They were on the periphery, and they were considering the things they'd heard about Christ, died on the cross for us, shed his blood, rose from the dead, all the claims of Christ Jesus. They're hearing about it, but it's like pulling out a wisdom tooth. It's so hard to extract them from this old covenant system because this is all that they and all their descendants have known all the way back to Moses. And it is ingrained in their DNA. All right? So some of them are, are, are considering it, thinking about it. The, the book of Hebrews is a message to those who have come in and those who are thinking about coming in. Be sure you don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't drift. Don't drift. Don't drift back into the old covenant system because it cannot, will not, never has, never will save you. We're told to earnestly heed the truth that Jesus is higher than the angels and has brought us the way of salvation. He was the very Son of God, maker of the worlds we saw last time, purger of our sins through his shed blood. And now he sits at the right hand of God Almighty. Hallelujah. And one day soon, God's going to turn to the Son and say, go get your bride. And when he does, the trumpet's going to blow and we are leaving this planet If you believe that, give the Lord a hand of praise. So he says, pay close attention to what you have heard and be sure you don't drift. The writer really is painting a a picture like this uh, of a man holding a great treasure, but he's holding it with limp fingers and he's allowing it to drop from his careless grasp. He said, don't do that with Jesus. Once you know he's it, once you know he is who he said he was, you hold tight and don't drift. Now, for them, it was drifting back into the old covenant. For us, it would be drifting back into our old life, all right? Because where they had the tendency to drift back into that old mosaic system of animal sacrifices and all of that, we have a tendency to drift back into our old worldly ways, to let the world lure us back into its icy grip. 
And, and, and so the, the danger of drifting is still real. So the book of Hebrews is relevant for all people for all time. Amen? So drifting is the danger here. Many of us have experienced being on a raft in the ocean where we lay back and say, oh, I think I'm just going to take a little siesta on this raft. We're in the ocean. And, you know, the sun is shining and you got music coming from the shore and you're on vacation and all is good with the world and kumbaya and God is good. And you just lay back on that raft for a little bit. And when you sit back up, you look and you are far from the shore. You go, how did I get out here I'll tell you how, you drifted. That's why I'm always encouraging our church, always. It's a broken record with me. It's my mantra. Stay in the Word every day. When you're in the Word every day, you're paddling. You're in control. You're not drifting from the shore, all right? You're staying tight with Jesus. It's people that get out there. They get out of church. They get out of prayer. They get out of the Word. They get out of fellowship. And before you know it, they look up one day, and they are far from where they used to be. They've drifted. See, we don't want to drift. Everybody say don't drift. We don't want to drift, and you can drift. I mean, you can drift anytime you want to. Uh, it's an uphill, uh, upstream battle. Once you're a believer, it's an uphill climb. It's an upstream fight until the day we go to be with Jesus. But you've got to keep on paddling. You've got to keep on pushing. You've got to keep on moving forward. You can't let yourself sit back and get careless and reckless with the things of God. Right? Because you will drift. I would drift. Anyone here would drift if you get away from the things of God. Many of us, so anyway, so keeping that in mind, and I love that raft analogy because that has happened to me. And and I was so far out, I was looking for the little fins coming out of the water, coming at me, right? I was way out there. The writer says, hold tight to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And he continues with this warning, starting in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast. In other words, what the angels said was true. And every transgression and disobedience receive a just reward. In other words, people who went on sinning paid for it. There were consequences. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We won't escape. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is we will not escape. Nobody will escape if you neglect so great a salvation. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's talking about the apostles. And God also bore witness with both signs and wonders and various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He's he's saying there is no escape from judgment Should we neglect the incredible salvation provided by Jesus Christ and him alone? He's the only one who saves. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. While he was on earth, he spoke about the salvation he had come to provide. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You can't get to the Father but through me. But if you believe on me, you will have eternal life. And it was confirmed by the apostles who heard him, the eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses. We saw his glory. We walked with him. We talked with him. We ate with him. We followed him for three and a half years of our life. We left everything. We were eyewitnesses to his face shining on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
when Moses stood on one side and Elijah the other, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, the message of God to the disciples was Jesus standing in front of you is the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets represented in those two men. They saw all this. They said, we are eyewitnesses. And this great salvation was also confirmed by the mighty signs and wonders. Raising the dead, opening the blind eyes, deaf ears, walking on water, multiplying the fish and the bread. You name it, Jesus did miracles. Why did those miracles happen? To attest to the reality of who he was. This is him. This is the one. This is the Messiah. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is telling us there's no excuse for turning him away. The truth of Jesus was spectacularly displayed among us. So how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Amen. That's a really sobering question. It's a very sobering question. It's one that we all need to consider. All of you watching by uh, webcast, good to have you with us. And there in your living room, consider it. How shall we escape? There is no escape if you neglect salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, next, the writer returns to the comparison between Jesus and the angels. He's going to go back to comparing the two again. In verse 5, he says, For he has not put the world to come, that is, the new world Christ will usher in at his return. He has not put that world that is coming in subjection to angels, has he? No, God has never, like he has Jesus Christ, placed the world that is coming in subjection to the angels. This is an honor reserved only for the Son of God. So in other words, who's going to be in charge of the new world that's coming? It's not going to be the angels. It's going to be Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Are you ready, everybody? Ruling the world with a scepter of righteousness from Jerusalem. For a thousand years, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Children will play around uh, snake dens because there will be no more carnivorous activity, no more adversity between creature and man. There will be no more fighting, no more war. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and there will be war no more. And that beautiful new world is coming. that is coming is going to be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ, not angels. Amen. Not angels. So again, he's showing us how much higher the sun is than the angels of God. Now hold that thought because now the writer is, is reaching back to Genesis when God made man and gave him dominion over the earth. Now pay close attention. Click your brains on. We're going to think now because this is going to make us think. We're going back to Genesis. You remember God gave man dominion over the earth. And so the writer is about to show us an important reason that Jesus came. In verse 6, chapter 2 of Hebrews, he's quoting the Psalms, but one testified in a certain place. Now, for some reason, he's alluding to Psalms, but he just didn't say Psalms. I don't know why. He could have said, now in the Psalms it says, but he decided to put it this way. One testified in a certain place, but he's quoting Psalms 8 saying, quote, here goes Psalms 8, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or what's the son of man that you even take care of him? Now look what he says about man, you, me. You have made him 
a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, church, that's what God did when he first made man in the Garden of Eden. All these things. He made him a little lower than the angels. He crowned him with glory and honor. He was a stupendous being. I don't think that we can even comprehend what Adam and Eve looked like. I believe before the fall, their faces shone with the very glory of God. Because there was no break between them and their fellowship with God. They had no sin, no stain, no taint from anything wrong. They they were in clear, open communion. And I believe God created a man and a woman that were so glorious, so beautiful, so arresting, so stupendous in their presence and appearance. We have come so far down from when they used to live to be 800 years, 900 years. Now we're, you know, if I make it to to 85, I'm a miracle. David talked about us getting our three score and 10, 70. So man has come way down. But back in the original beginning, oh, you think God did not crown him with glory and honor, Adam and Eve? Because he was made, they were made after God's image, according to God's image. They were a reflection of God. They weren't gods, but they had the glory of God on them. They had the presence of God on them. And so they were crowned with glory and honor, and he did set them over all the works of their hands and and put them in subjection. Let's read it Uh, in, in Genesis. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Notice the word dominion, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, God made man the boss. He gave him dominion over the whole earth. But when man fell into sin, he forfeited the perfect dominion God had intended for him. Because watch this, everybody. This breaks my heart. I hate it because I love God's creation. But immediately, There was mistrust and adversity between man and creature. Immediately. You remember that the the animals that God had made came walking up to Adam before the fall. And he named them. Lions, tigers, and bears, Uh uh-huh. Oh, my. That's what I meant to say. And so they came up to him. There was unbroken relationship. There was a unity. There was trust. It was a beautiful, incredible creation. We can't even imagine what that garden looked like. But when man fell, then immediately there is this mistrust between man and animal and man and bird and man and fish of the sea. And there was, everything, everything was affected negatively. God never had to say, Adam, where are you? He always knew where he was, and Adam was never hiding from God before then because he, was, he welcomed God. But after the fall, he's hiding from God, and God is saying, where are you? And those three words he's saying about the human race and everybody in it today, where are you? 
Where are you? Come to me. And, and so in the beginning, this is what the psalmist is telling us, that God set him over everything, but when he fell, he lost all of that. He lost all of that, all of that. So it had to be recovered. It had to be recovered, but can only be accomplished by somebody who was not stained or tainted by sin. Because sin became the, the bane of the human race. That person, the only one who could have ever reversed the curse, was Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Born of a woman, but conceived by the Spirit of God so that Adam's blood did not run in his veins. Amen. Nor did he ever commit a sin while he was here on earth. Can you imagine a life like that? Never once having to say, Father, forgive me, oops. Never. For God made Christ, says Paul in Corinthians, who never sinned. Everybody say never sinned. He never sinned. Made him to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Jesus Christ. The only way dominion could ever be restored was by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus on the cross where God literally laid our iniquity on him. And God's need for justice was satisfied on Jesus Christ on the cross. But now watch this. Verse 8 continues to point out that though dominion was given to man, he's not now experiencing it to the full like he did before the fall. Quoting it now. For in that he put all, put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now here's the writer of Hebrews. Look what he says. But now we don't yet see all things put under him. That is man. Why? It's waiting for the return of Jesus Christ to restore all things. Until then, until then, it hasn't fully been resolved. Although Jesus did all that needs to be done for it to happen, we have not got the dominion back we will have. I look forward. That's why Isaiah said, when he saw the millennial kingdom coming, he said, I saw the lion laying down with the lamb, and I saw, I saw peace among the creatures and between creature and man. And, and once again, Jesus Christ is going to restore the dominion that was originally ours and will be under him, and he will be under God. But until he returns, it's something we look forward to, and with great expectation. How many of you are looking forward to the return of Christ to rule the world with righteousness? Oh, he's going to do it. I guarantee you he's going to do it. It's going to come. The restoration of the original dominion God ordained for man will be regained at the return of Christ, where he will rule when he sets up his kingdom. What a great, great day that will be. No more Democrats, no more Republicans, no more Libertarians, no more elections. No more taxes. No more government. At least not the kind we know. It says the government will be upon his shoulders. Amen? And it will be, it will be a theocratic monarchy. God ruling the earth through King Jesus. Amen? Now, next, the writer points out that in his coming to earth, Jesus also became a little lower than the angels, just like God just told us he had done with man. Okay? So the same way that God said, I made man a little lower than the angels, 
Now we're being told in verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made also a little lower than the angels. Stop a minute. What's that telling us? That in all ways, except with sin, he became like one of us. He was made for a season a little lower than the angels. The one who had commanded the angels allowed himself to become a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Wow. So for a season of time on earth, Jesus was made a little bit lower than the angels, never in his deity, only in rank. Now, hear me, church, tonight. This is kind of, this is more steak than it is milk. But please catch this now. Nowhere ever did Jesus ever give up his deity. He did not lose his deity on the cross. When it says he became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, what that means is he became a sin sacrifice for us. He did not literally become a sinner because if he had literally become a sinner, he would have lost his deity. And Jesus never lost his deity. He was still God on the cross. Amen? But for a time, he allowed his rank to drop and he was lower than the angels while on the earth. He was the God-man servant who humbled himself all the way to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus tasted death for every man. Death is like a poison. And I want you to notice he tasted it, but he didn't swallow that poison. He tasted it. When he died, Jesus temporarily tasted death for all of us. He said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost and his spirit went to God. But he died, was put in the grave for three days and nights. He died in our stead so that the devil who had the power of death could no longer hold those who placed their faith in Christ in the grave. He can't hold us anymore. Devil, the devil had the power of death, but Jesus took that power away from him when he died on the cross and shed his innocent blood. Well, this is good stuff, everybody. Come on. I like to look at it like the devil had fangs. The fangs that he poisoned mankind with was death. He, he bit mankind and injected into our system death. But when Jesus shed his blood, he defanged the devil. For everybody who puts their faith in Christ, he can't, the devil cannot, cannot kill you. Death was the cup Jesus spoke of when praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. What was the cup? It was death. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I'm so glad he tasted death for me so that I don't have to. Amen. I'm sure my body's going to die someday, but guess what? When it dies, my spirit goes straight in the presence of the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, my body's coming out of the grave. Unless I'm here for the rapture, then my body's going up. But either way, a, a, a huge central feature of our salvation is not just the redemption of our soul, but the glorification of our bodies. Our bodies are going to be resurrected. You say, well, how can God do that when it's just ashes? How is Paul going to come out of the grave when he's nothing but ashes now? Hey, God spoke something out of nothing. You think he can't put ashes together? Come on, everybody. 
Then next, the writer addresses why Jesus suffered. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Everything is for him, and everything was created by him. In bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain, I love that phrase, the captain of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. Now, we've got to deal with this carefully, because that sounds like Jesus had some flaws that needed to be perfected. And the perfection came when he suffered. But that's not what it's saying. He did not have any moral or character imperfections. Never. Not for a microsecond. Jesus was sinless and Jesus was complete. It means that through his suffering, the work of redemption was perfected. He offered through his suffering a perfect sacrifice. And through his perfect sacrifice, he has brought now many sons and daughters to glory. And that's you and that's me. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that tonight? Many sons and daughters to glory. He brought many sons and daughters to glory. So he didn't have any imperfections in himself. His work was perfect. It was a perfect work. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. His work on the cross was perfecto, magnifico, perfect. And then the writer informs us that through his perfect sacrifice, Jesus made you and me a part of the family of God. Oh, this, this is about to get good. This blessed me today. Verse 11, chapter 2 of Hebrews. He says, both the one who makes people holy, that's the sanctifier. Who's the sanctifier? Who sanctifies you? Jesus. Faithful is he who calls you, capital H, Paul wrote in Thessalonians, faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. What's that preposition, it? If you read right before that verse, make you, make you perfect or sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit. See, right now, Jesus was working in all of us today. And here's what he was doing. One thing he was doing, separating us from the stain and the taint and the sin of this world. That's what holiness is. It's separation. It's not so holy somebody can't talk to you. Boy, he's so holy, I, don't, I can't even think of what to say to him. Hey, listen, holy people are generally happy people. Matter of fact, the holier you are, the happier you tend to be. But our sanctifier, faithful is he, capital H, who calls you, who also will sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit. All right? So Jesus is our sanctifier. What does he use to sanctify us? What, how does he sanctify you and I? What did he give us to bring about our sanctification? God the Spirit. How many of you can say, the minute the Holy Spirit came to live inside of me, I started being sensitive to things that were sinful? Amen? Amen. I started feeling like, oh, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't say that. I mean, did you notice how quickly the Lord cleaned up your mouth and started talking to you about the habits in your life and started bit by bit. It's a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lifetime. But over a lifetime, the Holy Ghost is sent as the agent of sanctification. And he sanctifies you and me. We have a power. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so every day that we walk through this dirty, filthy, demon-infested, sin-infected world, 
The Holy Spirit is working inside of us saying, come apart. Come apart to me. Come unto me. All you that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Walk with me. Leave that and embrace this. Say no to that, yes to this. Walk away from that, walk toward this. It's, it's a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, lifelong process of sanctification. Or else how in the world are you and I ever going to be holy? It's not going to happen if he doesn't give us a new nature. And then with the Holy Spirit within us begin to pull us apart, not falling apart, but pull us apart from the sin of this world. And thank God for that. So that's what he's saying here. It was fitting for him. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, and I, I, I went ahead, I'll drop back a little bit, down to verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus using the Holy Spirit, and those who are made holy, that's the sanctified, you and me, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us bro and sis. Amen? So, so, so he's telling us here something wonderful, folks. Because listen, until you're saved, you are not a part of the family of God. So you're sounding real elitist there, Pastor Jeff. You're sounding exclusive. You're sounding kind of discriminating. It is discriminating. And we need to understand it's discriminating. Oh, you think God's not going to discriminate at the judgment? My Bible tells me he's separating sheep from the goats. That's discrimination. He's going to discriminate the lost from the found. The blind from the seeing, those who know him and those that don't. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That's discriminating. Enter into the joy of your Lord, for you are faithful over little. I'm going to make you rule over much. That's discriminating. So it is discriminating. It is exclusive. Not elitist, but exclusive. So once you are saved, we're being told we're made part of the family, family, the real family of God. Jesus was teaching in a certain house once, and he was informed that his mother and brothers were outside wanting to speak to him. And he said one of these things where you kind of do a double take. He said, who is my mother? Now, Mary's out there, folks. Mother Mary's out there. Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, there's my mother. There's my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister, and my mother. Amen? Now, he wasn't being mean to his siblings and his mom. He was making a point. When you believe on him, God is going to add you to a part of the family of God. And that's more real than an earthly family. So this provides a glimpse for us into the way Jesus viewed the redeemed. We are only forgiven. We're not just saved and brought into heaven. But we're of the same family as Christ because we have the same Father. Amen. See, when, when I got saved, I looked up for the first time in my life and I said, Father. <laughs> How can I call God my Father? Because I'm born of Him. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in His mother's womb. So God was truly His heavenly Father. 
But in a spiritual sense, when you and I are saved, we're born again by the incorruptible seed of the word of God. So we are also sired by God spiritually. So he's our father, really and truly, not theoretically, truly. In his teaching, Jesus regularly referred to God as talking to his disciples. He would say, your heavenly father, not just mine, but yours, disciples of mine. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, but your heavenly father feeds them. Don't worry about things. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? The Gentiles are chewing their nails about all those things. For your heavenly father, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Everybody say, my heavenly father. Can we lift our hands and just say, thank you, heavenly father, for sending Jesus Christ to die for me. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Let's say together, Abba, Father. Amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Your father, my brother, my sister, my mother. I love it. Then the writer of Hebrews quotes out of Psalms and 2 Samuel and Isaiah. He's quoting from three places now. That our becoming a part of God's very family was predicted long ago. Starting at verse 12, chapter 2 of Hebrews. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. You. He's not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. In the assembly, he says, rather, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. That's Psalms 22, 22. Predicting Jesus was going to have brothers and sisters. He was going to whose name he would declare in the assembly. And again, I will put my trust in him, 2 Samuel 22. And again, he says, here am I, and who, everybody? The children, come on, the children, everybody read it with me, the children God has given me. Here I am, says the Lord, and the children, that's a family term, God has given me. I'm so glad to be a child of the king. Amen? Amen. Now we're headed towards the close of this chapter. How many of you are being blessed tonight? This is good stuff, isn't it? Everybody say T-bone. This is T-bone stuff. All right. Next, the writer points to one of the great victories Jesus' death on the cross made possible for us, and that's deliverance from not just death, but fear of it. Now, please catch this. I'm, I'm going to minister something strong to you now. I want you to catch this. Know it in your knower. Deliverance from fear of death. He came to not only deliver us from the jaws of death, but from the fear of death. Chapter 2, verse 14 of Hebrews, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Don't tell me the devil's a figment of somebody's imagination. The Bible deals with the devil as a real personality. And look at verse 15. Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what the Bible said. Jesus became one of us so that he could deliver us from death, that we would have eternal life. But also while we're on this planet, we are not in bondage to the fear of dying. 
I mean, this matters. Jesus became one of us that he might taste death for every man. And in doing so, he broke Satan's power of death. That's how he was able to promise us, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. The one who believes in me will live. And even though they die, whosoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, church? All right. So in bringing us salvation, he also delivered us while we're still here on earth from the granddaddy of all fears, the fear of death. Now, for a number of years, I've been working on a theory in my own mind. I've never read anybody say this. This is me. You can chew the meat, spit out the bones. If you don't think it's true, it's fine. It's just a theory. But I've thought this through. I'm theorizing that all fears, and there's a bunch, have their root in the fear of death, the granddaddy of all fears. Because the Bible doesn't point this out for no reason. It doesn't tell us that Jesus came to deliver us from fear that held us in bondage for our whole life. It holds that world out there terrified of fear, terrified of dying, terrified of the unknown, going into the great abyss. Who knows what's going to happen when I die? Where am I going to go? What's going to become of me? Do I just become nothing? Do I become nothing? And that terrifies people. The thought of becoming just nothing. Do I go to some purgatory? What becomes of me? Do I become some ghost floating and flitting around the world? What becomes of me? And it has the whole world in bondage to fear. And I believe It's very feasible that all other fears spring from this one because all fear, when you stop and think about it, contains an element of the fear of annihilation or of being destroyed somehow or another. You don't, you're not afraid of anything if you're not afraid for yourself. Something happening to you. And I think it's possible, I'm just throwing this out, that if you look at it closely, the root of all of it is the fear of death because that's the ultimate annihilation, the ultimate, the ultimate loss, the ultimate destruction. And I believe when you get saved, that's why a lot of your other fears go away. Because the fear of death has now gone away. And that's the granddaddy of all of them. It's a thought. But Jesus' promise of eternal life removes the fear of death and with it, I believe many other fears disappear. Now, not all. I know we all struggle with fears from time to time. Worry, we worry ourselves. Silly sometimes. But, but, but I do believe, if you think about it, that it could be the root. Or the Bible wouldn't point it out. As we close out chapter 2, the writer further explains why Jesus had to become a man. And we're in the last couple of verses here. He says in verse 16, chapter 2 of Hebrews, For surely it's not angels that he helps, They don't need help. They're good. But Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, is who he's referring to, but by default, all of humanity. Verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because, I love this verse, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help me. 
He's able to help those who are being tempted. You know what this is telling us? That he's not some lofty, ivory tower God up there who when you and I are battling the devil and we're involved in some kind of real temptation and man, it's down to the wire and the devil's taking us down to the mat and, and, and maybe we're losing some battles. He's not up there just looking at us kind of callously like, well, get it together. No, he's saying, I have compassion on you because I empathize with you because I was there. I know what it's like to battle the devil. I know what it's like. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet he never sinned. So you tell me the temptation, he was tempted by it. At least the general genre of that sin. So it's telling us here that because he became one of us, that gives him the unique ability to hurt when we hurt, to feel our pain, to reach out in compassion and not condemn us, but say, look, I get it. I'm going to help pick you up. I know what it's like to go toe-to-toe with the devil, and I'm going to give you victory here. And even if you fail, I'm going to pick you back up because I understand because I can have compassion on you. I am a merciful high priest. Come on, everybody. Well, that ought to get you excited. So next time you're in a real battle, just look up and say, Lord, help me. And and picture him saying, I'm going to help you, I understand, because I was there. But not just merciful, he's faithful. A merciful and a faithful high priest. That's talking about his total trustworthiness. Paul said, faithful is he who calls you. Faithful is he. That means whatever he promised you, he's going to do it. That means the sun will fall out of the sky before his promises fail. That means the stars will quit shining before his promises fail. That means the earth will leave its axis and fly into space before his promises fail. Amen? His promises cannot fail, everybody. Come on. His promises cannot fail. So let's stand together tonight. God is so good. Aren't you so glad that we've got a heavenly father that sent his son, Jesus Christ, to feel our pain, to walk in the dirt and grime of this world, to die on the cross and offer a perfect sacrifice so that we could be redeemed, delivered from death and the fear of death, and and be crowned with glory and honor and have our dominion given back one day when Christ returns and we rule with him. Amen. Come on, everybody. Let's just lift our hands to the Lord. Come on, give him praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come on, give him praise tonight. Jesus, thank you, Lord. Let's worship him before we go. To worship, here I am. Come on, lift your hands and give him praise. Here I am to say that you're my
and give him praise. Come on, everyone. If you're thankful for Jesus Christ tonight. I'll tell you, sometimes I, I read the Bible like this chapter today, and I just get moved to the marrow of my bones of what Jesus did for us. It just, it just goes deep. I'm so thankful for what God has done. Amen? Amen. This Sunday, I believe I'm speaking on the Holy Ghost is not spooky. You say, what in the world is that going to be about? You're going to have to come out and find out. But I'm going to talk to you about the Holy Ghost is not spooky. You'll find out where I'm going with that. So go tell somebody, hey, this Sunday, I don't know what he's going to say, but he's preaching on the Holy Ghost is not spooky. What about that? You'll have people coming out just to see what I'm going to say. And I want them to. They may need to get saved. Amen. Sunday, let me tell you before you go, we had altar calls that were powerful. I, I dismissed the congregation, but I had people come down that wanted a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit, and the altar was full. And I, I got back there to change shirts, which I have to do because I preach, preach uh, hard on Sundays, and I, and I sweat through shirts. I know it's gross, but I'm just being transparent. Anyway, I got back there at 5 till 12 because we were in the altar all that time. God was moving. And so... And bring somebody who needs Jesus. We love you in the Lord. God bless the people as they go. Thank you for your favor on them. And thank you, Lord, for shining us on us with the face of Jesus Christ in your mighty name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.